You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 9 through 17 today. This is um, an important section of, of Romans where Paul is talking, continuing to talk about the truth that we are justified or saved by faith alone. Abraham has been his uh, prime illustration as the Jews looked at Abraham as their spiritual father, so to speak. Paul reminds them in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was not Abraham's goodness that caused righteousness to be uh, given to him. Uh, It was his faith. But why then was Abraham circumcised? And what's the purpose and point of the Old Testament law if it was only by faith? Um, And so that is what Paul is taking up today. You might be tempted to think this has nothing to do with me in in the year 2022, but I assure you this morning that it has uh, important things to do with you and me. And uh, so we give our attention to God's Word, and we ask Him to give us ears to hear. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of faith, the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there's no law, there's no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations. Lord, please... uh, By the power of your spirit today, help us to understand what these words meant to Paul's original audience in Rome. And Lord, also by your spirit, help us to understand how they apply to us today and the truth of what Paul is saying, how it bears down on our own hearts and lives today. And I pray that you would use me as your servant. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I know we can get lost in some of the details and and terms here of what Paul has been saying to us in Romans, but I I just want to remind you of the big picture of keeping the the main thing, which is the plain thing, and the, the plain thing, which is the main thing, that Paul here is talking about the most important question of all of life is what is a Christian? Or how does one become 
right with God? How does one become a Christian? It is the most important question of life. And when he writes here that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, Paul is reminding us that the way a person is saved is the same way that a person is saved, had been saved ever since the beginning, even in Genesis. Uh, when a person puts their faith in Christ, God takes the guilt of their sins and he credits it to Jesus on the cross and he takes the righteousness of Jesus and he puts it on us. Uh, that is salvation. That is how we are saved, how we become Christians. And the Christian is one who, having realized this truth, does not attempt to do anything to save himself or herself. Uh, verse five says, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. And, and the moment that we try to do anything uh, for our own salvation, it, it really means that we haven't understood the gospel. We, we haven't understood here the glorious message of this. After salvation, uh, all you want to do is serve the Lord and work for him and please him, but that does not save you. Your repentance does not save you. Your faith does not save you. Uh, Lloyd-Jones wrote it like this, you are not saved because you repent. You are not saved because you believe the gospel, though both are involved in your salvation. You are saved because God justifies you by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus saves us. Yes, faith and repentance are the means by which we take hold of, of that salvation, but that is all. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and it is in Christ alone who saves us. Jesus saves. So if I were to ask you, are you a Christian today? How would you know the answer to that? How would you know how to answer that? I would follow up with these questions. Have you ceased altogether trusting in yourself and your own good works to save you? That's important. Do you acknowledge that salvation is entirely a gift from God? If you pause, if you stutter there, if you say, well, well, but I believe that, but uh, what about, I think you still have to do this. You, you, you've not understood the gospel message. This is what Paul is laboring to, to bring us to here in, in Romans chapter, chapter 4. The doctrine of, of justification or salvation is so clearly put in verse five. God justifies the ungodly. He does so by means of our faith. Abraham did not do anything to earn this, merit this, deserve this, achieve this, work this. He was saved by faith. The reason David, King David in verses seven and eight as mentioned here was so happy was because his sins had been covered they had not been counted against him. This was only by the grace of God. Simply, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling, the hymn writer said. This is the testimony of a true Christian. The question is, is it your testimony today? The truth that our salvation is by faith alone should, those of you who are still lost, this should cause you to immediately trust in Jesus. I mean, what could you possibly be waiting for, given this, this news? That there, there is simply nothing else for you to do. There's no other work for you to, 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 to do in order to achieve this. There's nothing you need to get right beforehand. Uh, there's nothing more to understand. There are no more works that you need to, to, be, to be done. Jesus has done everything for us. He has paid it all. 
And, and so turn from your sins and trust him now. There's nothing more to wait for. Do it now. Do it now. Now, now Paul has been dealing with objections to this truth, and he, he continues to do so here in verse 9. And we need to be aware of what's happening here and why Paul is taking time to do this, I think, in chapter 4. Um, because I think it is because of the uh, tenaciousness and, and the power and, and the subtlety, the subtle character of unbelief that continues to come up in, in man's heart. As Paul deals with one objection uh, to this gospel, to this truth about salvation, there's another one that comes up and, and it just keeps on. Uh, in fact, this is the, the, the tragedy perhaps that befalls mankind. It keeps arguing and arguing and arguing against its own salvation. One writer says, man does not have a comprehension problem when it comes to salvation. He has a suppression problem. And Paul has already told us that, chapter 1, verse 18, by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. Another commentator said this, man in sin is always anxious to claim a little credit for himself. He resents the doctrine that salvation is solely and entirely the free gift of God. It's so true. The case should be uh, closed. It's been clear-cut. Paul has made his point. He's made his point many different ways over and over again. Abraham was saved by faith apart from works. We must be saved by faith too apart from works. But then there is this stubborn unbelief that kind of begins to raise its ugly head in our hearts. Surely there's got to be more than this. More than just faith. In, in Paul's day, what about circumcision? That's verse 9. What about circumcision? What, what about uh, uh, surely circumcision? Wasn't that given by God? It's been practiced by the Jews down through the centuries going all the way back to Abraham. Surely circumcision, that has to have something to do with, with salvation. Surely we can't be right. It can't be right to say that salvation is by faith alone. There has to be something more to this. If God has commanded this and he's given this as a gift and to Abraham, that it must be involved some way in our salvation, right? Now, you may not be worried about this today, as we as Gentiles, 2,000 years after Paul, but, but we could easily make a, an application jump here. How many people are trusting in their own baptism? or trusting in, the, in their taking of the communion to, to save them. Jesus gave both of these ordinances, didn't he? He taught us both of these things, and since he did, isn't it right to reason that since Jesus gave them and told us to do these things, that they must have something to do with our salvation? There's a lot of people that believe that today. If you were to ask them and you say, how are you a Christian, or are you a Christian? Many of them, the first answer would be, yes, I've been baptized. And, and, and it's not a terrible answer, but you might want to follow up and say, okay, so you've been baptized, and are, are you trusting in your baptism to save you? It's an important question. Oh, but I take the Lord's Supper. Oh, you do? Okay, are you trusting in the Lord's Supper to save you? Does it save you? Again, we come back and we, we, we should ask, as Paul does in verse 3, what does the Scripture say? What does the Bible teach about this? Uh, not what you think it might say or, or someone else has said or how you feel about it, but what does the Bible teach about it? Notice how Paul addresses it beginning in verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? 
For we, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? That's an important question. And Paul goes on to answer, verse 10, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. In other words, Abraham was saved before he was circumcised. And he's right. If you go back and look in Genesis chapter 15, which we're uh, studying on Wednesday nights, 6 p.m., um, <laughs> you'll discover in the story that Abraham's circumcision was not till Genesis 17, about 14 years later, after his faith had credited righteousness to him. Abraham was declared righteous, in other words, before he was saved before he was circumcised. And, and this, again, should answer this question. It should be fairly plain. Paul doesn't really need to say anything else, but he wants to be clear. Verse 11, he continues to teach. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Notice here how Paul explains circumcision as both a sign, you want to underline that word, and also a seal. It's a sign and a seal. A sign in the simplest language is, is, is a visible object that... Uh, uh, points to something that uh, is different and greater than itself. For example, if you're going down Interstate 65 South and you see a sign and it says something like, you know, Nashville, I'm just making it up, Nashville, 100 miles uh, to go, you know that that sign, when you hit that sign, you're not in Nashville, right? It's pointing to something greater, the destination down the road, Nashville. Circumcision was a sign that pointed toward the covenant promise of God, but it was not the promise itself. That, that's important. In the case of our baptism, we, we like to say that baptism is an outward sign of a inward change. Uh, it, it pictures the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, it pictures our salvation, that our old way of sinful life has died and been buried and that we've been raised to walk in the newness of life. Baptism is an outward testimony of what has already happened inside of us that we've turned from our sins and trusted in Jesus Christ. Baptism is not salvation. It's not the destination, it's a sign, a sign. And the Lord's Supper is also an outward sign. What does the Lord's Supper point to as a sign? Anybody? The death of Christ, right? The body, the blood that was shed for us. It's not the supper that we're trusting in. The sign is not the destination. The cross is the destination, church. Notice also Paul calls circumcision a seal a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. A few weeks ago, I realized that, a couple months ago actually, I realized that my passport had expired and so I did all of that work, filled out all of that stuff and mailed it in. And then just a couple weeks ago, I got, uh, got my new passport back and it has the seal of the United States of America on my passport. It's stamped on it. And, and it's indicating that Behind my passport stands the authority of the United States government. Uh, circumcision was given to Abraham as a seal 
from God to validate his promise to him. And similarly, we could say the same thing about baptism and Lord's Supper, that, 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 that there are seals that a, a person who has been baptized or a person who is taking part in the Lord's Supper has already been identified as being with Jesus Christ, a follower, a believer in him. They're already Christians before they take part in that. This is just the seal, he says. Yes, these things are really important. Jesus commanded us to do them, right? But not as a means for salvation. This is what Paul is saying. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Not by these things. Again, this is why Paul takes time here. At chapter 4, uh, it might be the, the, the least exciting chapter in all of Romans. You know, and you think about the, the big perspective of it. But yet, how important this is. Perhaps maybe for some of you here today who are trusting in these things to save you. What a terrifying thought it would be to stand before God in the, in the judgment, the judgment seat of God. And all of your life, you, you've been sure that you've done enough only to discover that you've been headed in the wrong direction the whole time. Think of the panic that would be present in you in that moment before God. In other words, that what you had been holding on to, that you thought was what was going to save you, to discover in that moment that it in fact it, it, it was not providing you salvation. You thought you were saved because you had been baptized. You thought you were okay. You thought you were saved because you, you'd been taking part of the Lord's Supper. That's what Jesus told you to do. You thought you were saved because you were a member at the church and your membership was there. You thought you were saved because you had done your best in this life only to realize in that moment before God that all of these things that you'd been trusting in, they just turn like sand and they just, they just fade away right out of your hand. And you're condemned to everlasting judgment. I don't know about you, but I think God, Paul, takes the time here to talk about this. Because it is important. Our only hope for salvation is Christ. It's not the sign, the signs that save us, it's Him. He continues, verse 11, the second part, the purpose was to make Him the Father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but also who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It, Paul is turning this objection that's being raised by these Jewish believers, he's turning it completely around. He's saying that it's not the Gentile who must come to Jewish circumcision in order to be saved. It is actually the Jew who must come to the Gentile faith. The faith. Such the faith as Abraham had long before he was circumcised. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Righteousness is counted to those who believe. Boyce explains it like this, no one is saved because he or she has been baptized or confirmed or gone to a mass or shared in the communion service. A person is saved through faith in the perfect and completed work of Christ. That's the truth. 
Now, those of you who are taking notes and you're wondering, when are we ever going to actually start the sermon? We're about to start. Just kidding. We're going to get to the, the notes now here in verses 13 through 17. Basically, Paul here is expanding this argument uh, to include those who were also trusting in the law of Moses to save them. In other words, they're trusting in their own goodness, their own obedience. If they just live a good moral life and obey the Ten Commandments, then they're going to be saved. Notice how Paul begins this verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law. We already know it didn't come through circumcision. Now it did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. In other words, salvation does not come through the law, through obedience, through morality, through good deeds, through circumcision. It comes through faith. He keeps saying it over and over again. Then he lays out some arguments here uh, in verses 14 through 17. And what he does is he, he, he kind of argues, uh, uh, both, makes an argument for both positions, uh, if you will. Uh, consequences of either position that you that you hold and uh, this isn't going to take us long to work through because it's so plain from the text so first in the negative sense if salvation can be achieved that's what we're talking about if we if Paul says if you want to hold to this view if you think salvation can be achieved whether it be by good works or morality or circumcision or whatever else you want to put in there there are three consequences that come about to this notice the first one faith has no value Verse 14, for it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null. It's null. And the reason is not difficult to understand. It's simply put that faith and, and the law uh, are, are, are the opposites. If you are choosing to work for your salvation, then inevitably you're, you're rejecting faith. And vice versa. It's impossible. It's impossible to be saved by both faith and works. It's sort of like saying, I'm, I'm going to go on a trip to California and New York. It, you, they're going in completely opposite directions. The, the law points to our human abilities. Faith points to God's accomplishment for us. The, the, the law says, do this, but faith says, this has been done. Rest in it. And, and they're completely opposites. You can't have it both ways, Paul says. So if you want to think it's, you're achieving it, then you've thrown faith. Faith doesn't even matter. It's null and void. Secondly, if you believe that your own achievements save you, then he says the promise is void. It's not just faith that is null. Look what he says in verse 14. The promise is void. I mean, if you're, if you're going to say that God made the promise of salvation to Abraham on the condition that Abraham kept God's law perfectly, uh, then immediately, it immediately means that the promise is never going to be fulfilled. Abraham was not a totally righteous man. He had sin. If God had said, Abraham, I'm going to make a great promise to you, but it's on the condition that you obey perfectly, God might as well not have made the promise. Who could keep that? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Amen? And so, but God didn't say that. John Stott puts it this way. What God said to Abraham was not obey this law and I will bless you. He said to him, I will bless you, believe my promise. That's exactly right, faith. A third consequence of trusting yourself for salvation is that only wrath remains. And Paul is very clear about this, verse 15, for the law brings 
wrath. But where there's no law, there's no transgression. Instead of achieving salvation for yourself, you not only fail to achieve the promise, Paul says, but you're actually achieving God's wrath for yourself. If you want to go down this route of trusting yourself, you're achieving God's wrath for yourself. This tells us something very important about the purpose of the Old Testament law. Why is it in there? What's going on with that? It is not a checklist for you to keep to be saved. But he tells us here, for the, the, there's no, where there's no law, there's no transgression. But the, the law is a mirror to reveal your need for salvation. The, the law was given to show us that we cannot keep the law. We cannot, and that is why we desperately need a Savior for us. That's, that's the purpose. The one who kept the law perfectly, Jesus Christ, for you and me. That leads Paul to a second set of consequences here that show forth the other reality that if salvation is by faith, if salvation is by faith, which is what he's teaching us, there are three consequences there too. First of all, faith establishes grace. Verse 16, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. Faith and grace go together. Right? Just like works and the law go together. Faith and grace. Grace is the, the unmerited favor of God apart from works. It comes to us simply by, by simple acceptance, by, by faith. And the way of faith alone guarantees to us that salvation is by grace. That it's by grace. That's what he's saying. The, the, the moment that you begin to add anything, hear this, the moment that you begin to add something to it, whether it be circumcision or baptism or good works or, or any of those things, you are negating the grace of God. You, you're, you're, you're detracting from the glory of God. Remember, there's nothing that we can boast about, Paul has already told us, in our salvation. God does it all. We can't even take credit for our faith. Because if you boast about the fact that you have faith and your lost neighbor doesn't have faith, you are no longer under grace. You're saying that you've worked for it. You've made your faith a work and therefore your pride. But the scripture says we're saved by grace through faith so that no one can boast. Remember Galatians 6, 14, far be it from me to boast except, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's by grace. A second consequence of salvation by faith alone is that faith brings assurance of salvation. Notice this. This is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. And the last part of verse 16 there, and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Think about the opposite of this today. If your salvation is dependent on your works, how do you know that you've done enough? How do you know? If it's based on uh, your morality, have you been honest enough? Have you been pure enough? Have you, uh, have you been generous enough? Well, what, if the, the, what if you've committed one too many sins? Just one too many. What if you got to heaven and you found out that the minimum you know, was uh, 88 and you committed 89 and you didn't know it? What if, you, what if you were one good work shy? What if you got there and God says, nope, I required this many, you only, you're, you're just one short, and I'm sorry. How would you ever know? You could never know, could you? 
Think about the doubts that this leads to. Thank goodness the scripture does not teach that it's by works, but by faith and grace. Donald Gray Barnhouse explains it like this, a bit of a long quote. He says, the law is the womb of doubt. And anyone who's attached to the law or its works is going to be besieged by all of the doubts which are born from the law. You're you're never going to know if you've done enough. Any individual, he writes, who has his eyes upon himself will be miserable. The man who walks by the law walks in the night. And his footsteps echo against the wall of the darkness that goes with the law. These echoes rise to his ears and each sound from all the troop of doubts give him fear upon fear. And if he pauses, he is in the silence of dreaded fears. And as he runs from them, his footsteps echo all the faster with the increasing tempo of the hysteria of doubt. But the man, he writes, who walks by the promise of grace walks in the broad day. His footsteps echo against the light of the promises of God. And he feels himself surrounded by the angels of blessing. His eager steps press forward to claim the blessings. And the increasing tempo of of his footsteps sets up the echoes of further blessings. If he stops... Listen to this picture. He finds himself in green pastures and beside still waters. When he walks again, he's in the paths of righteousness. He hastens on to the golden city and the brightness of its prospect takes away any sense of fatigue that might naturally rise from the length of the road. And when the road ends, he finds that he has been supplied with grace at every step and brought on to the triumph of life eternal. What a picture. Faith brings assurance of salvation. Works brings doubt. Third consequence, faith opens the door of salvation to all. It opens the door of salvation to all. That is why it depends on faith. Verse 16, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. When he talks about the adherence of the law there and the one who shares the faith, he's, he's saying, again, Jews and Gentiles. He's saying that salvation by faith opens the door for all to be saved. For all to be saved. That's what he's saying. The gospel call goes out to all, regardless of who you are, what you've done, what you haven't done. The gospel is for you. And it comes by faith. And you see, we're right back to where we started at the beginning of the sermon. Why would you put this off? Why would you not embrace this by faith? There is nothing more for you to do. It's all been done. There's nothing more that you can do. There's nothing more that needs to be done. Jesus has done it all. Salvation is by his grace through faith. Why won't you come to Jesus? If you are excluded today, it is only because you are excluding yourself by refusing to come into this grace by faith. By refusing to come in. Don't let that be true of you. Don't refuse. 
Don't, don't turn from your sins. Turn from yourself. Quit trying to be your own savior. Quit trying to be your own God. Turn from your good works and your attempts to save yourself and put your faith in the only one who can save, Jesus Christ. Trust him today. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words here uh, from Paul, your word. Thank you for all that it teaches us. May today we're reminded of these things, the stubborn unbelief that lives in us all. May once again we put it to death. May we know that, that it is Christ alone who saves. May we trust in him, trust in him alone for salvation. And then rest in this, in peace, glorifying you, worshiping you, serving you out of this incredible peace. Do your work in hearts and lives today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.